Hi folks, I'm Jay Goldberg, the Ontario Director here at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. I am joined by my friend and new colleague, uh, Ryan Thorpe, who is our investigative journalist, who's been doing some great work uncovering some real nonsense coming out of the CBC. Uh, Ryan, great to have you here. Uh, yet another story you've dug up about the CBC. Uh, why don't you explain to our supporters uh, what the latest is that you found? For sure. Thanks, Jay. Um, so thanks to some uh, internal CBC documents that we were able to get our hands on through a series of access to information requests, we now know that the number of CBC employees making six-figure salaries has more than doubled since Prime Minister Justin Trudeau came to power in 2015. So uh, let me break down those uh, numbers for you. So in the 2015-2016 fiscal year, there were 438 CBC employees making more than $100,000 annually for a total cost to taxpayers of about $59.5 million. By 2021-22, there was 949 CBC employees making more than $100,000 per year for a total cost to taxpayers of $119.5 million. Um, and when we take a closer look at those numbers, it's also clear that the growth didn't stop during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so the number of CBC employees making six figures annu annually rose by 14 and 13% in 2020 and 2021, respectively. So that means there are now 220 more CBC employees earning six figures than there were before the pandemic. Folks, you know, I don't know about you, but uh, this makes my blood boil and, uh, you know, and I'm sure it's uh, really riling up uh, our friend Chris Sims, who's been leading our campaign to get rid of the CBC, or at the very least defund it. Uh, you know, times were tough for so many of us throughout the pandemic the last few years, but it really seems like it was a tale of two pandemics. We, we say that a lot, but, uh, you know, a tale on the one hand that uh, Canadians were suffering through job losses and lockdowns. And on the other hand, some working for the government uh, just really lucked out. And it seems that CBC employees are definitely in that group. Um, but, uh, okay, Ryan, uh, you've told us a lot so far about uh, uh, this extra pay, these increases, but I know it doesn't stop there. Yeah, that's that's definitely right. Uh, so we also found out that the CBC has paid out more than or almost 185 million in bonuses and pay raises since 2015 for an average of 23 million per year. And that includes 80 million in bonuses and pay raises since the onset of the pandemic. Um, so the cost of bonuses in 2022 alone uh, cost taxpayers 16 million. And all told, 1,142 employees at the CBC received a bonus last year, and the average bonus uh, was 14,000, uh, slightly over $14,000 per employee. So, in the eight years since Trudeau has been elected, the number of CBC employees taking home an annual bonus has skyrocketed. It's it's more than doubled, rising from 546 in 2015 to 1,142 in 2022, which is an increase of 109%. Um, and the records that we've obtained uh, show that only one CBC employee out of more than 7,000 received a pay cut during that time period. Well, I would love to know what that one employee did to get a pay cut while everybody else was uh, getting a raise uh, left, right, and center. Um, yeah, okay, so not only are they rolling it at the CBC in terms of uh, what they're getting in terms of salaries, they're also rolling in it when it comes to bonuses. Uh, you know, these numbers 
Uh, they're shocking and and just a lot of you know out of touch going on for sure over at the CBC. But okay, Ryan, I know that uh, you know we've talked about salaries, we've talked about bonuses, but can you tell us what's been going on with uh, the CBC's budgets uh, in, since 2015 as well? Yeah, so it's not just the pay raises and bonuses that have spiked over at the CBC since 2015. Um, it's the CBC's annual operating budget as well. So since 2015. The CBC's annual funding from taxpayers has increased by $203 million, according to its annual reports. And that includes $21 million it got in immediate operational support in 2021 that was uh, aimed at ensuring its stability during the COVID-19 pandemic. And then during the federal government's uh, most recent fiscal update, it got another $42 million top-up, which was aimed at helping the CBC recover from the pandemic. You know, uh, Canadians are the ones uh, who need help recovering from the pandemic and the soaring costs and the inflation, uh, not CBC. You know, they're, they're getting $1.2 billion a year of taxpayer dollars. I don't think that they're really the ones who uh, are desperate for help coming out of the pandemic. But, um, you know, I, I was talking earlier about a tale of two pandemics, but when you look at the media, it, it's a tale of two media experiences as well. Uh, you've got the CBC on one hand and the rest of the media on the other. So Ryan, can you tell us about how the rest of Canadian media, media is doing while the CBC is getting all of this money and all of these bonuses and all of these pay hikes? Yeah, the short answer is not good, <laughs> not very good at all. So last year, Bell Media slashed more than 200 journalism and support jobs in radio and TV across Canada, which resulted in three radio stations, one in Hamilton, one in Vancouver, and one in Winnipeg, uh, being shuttered completely. Um, just this year, Post Media, which is the largest newspaper chain in the country, cut its editorial staffing levels by 11%, uh, and those cuts impacted nearly every Post Media publication, including the National Post, the Vancouver Sun, the Calgary Herald. Uh, and just um, just last week, Global News announced uh, a round of cuts to its online journalists and online video journalists. Um, and so we're seeing, you know, newsrooms across the country really being decimated. Uh, and as someone who used to work in the Canadian newspaper industry, there's something about this that just frankly bothers me on a very deep and profound level. The CBC is funded through tax dollars to the tune of $1.2 And as a result, it, it simply has staffing levels and an operating budget that no privately owned media in this country can compete with. The CBC uses that money to compete with privately owned media and then turns around and gives away its product for free, thereby undermining the ability of news outlets to sell their work for a profit and stay afloat. And to top it all off, the CBC also competes with those outlets for advertising. Um, so the fact of, of the matter is that just every step along the way here, the CBC is undercutting the ability of private Canadian media to sustain itself. Okay, so Ryan, I know you got all of this from access to information requests, but uh, you know, given that the CBC is completely funded by taxpayers, that we're spending one point two billion dollars a year on it, you know, shouldn't they just have to proactively disclose how much they're paying to staff? Yeah, I think the answer is yes, they should, uh, but they don't, uh, which is definitely a problem. So the, the federal government does not publish an annual sunshine list, which uh, you know is a, a document to provide transparency on how much public employees are making. Um, in contrast, you know most municipal and provincial governments do publish these types of um, proactive disclosure documents. Um, 
So that means the only way for us to know how much the CBC is, you know, handing out in bonuses and pay raises or how much employees are making is to file access to information requests. Um, but the fact of the matter is the lack of transparency doesn't stop there. So while I was uh, digging into this story, I came across a 2020 research paper um, from the Forum for Research and Policy and Communications, and they had taken a look at every available CBC annual report from 1937 to 2019. And they concluded that the CBC's annual reports provide little objective information about the fulfillment of its mandate, as well as little consistent historical financial information, which makes tracking how much money it's gotten from taxpayers over the decades uh, quite difficult. And uh, this is a direct quote from that report. CBC today provides little, if any, detailed information about the availability of its services in Canada and their use by the public or about the programming that it produces each year. So not only does the CBC not publish a sunshine list, but there are significant issues with the annual reports that it does publish, which makes keeping an eye on you know, what it's up to and how it's spending our money uh, more difficult uh, than it needs to be. And one thing I would just add very quickly here is that I think that this lack of transparency uh, underlines the importance of organizations like the CTF and the work that we're doing here using that access to information uh, system to get uh, the documents and the information that, quite frankly, Canadians have every right uh, to know about. You're exactly right. Canadians should know. Uh, it should be proactively disclosed. Uh, when taxpayers are paying $1.2 billion, that's billion with a B, to the CBC, I think we should be able to see exactly how much they're spending and where they're spending and what they're giving to employees and what kind of bonuses they're giving to employees. We should be able to see every single purchase. Uh, okay, Ryan, uh, thanks for bringing this to our attention. Uh, you know, obviously frustrating to see, but it's really good that we're shining a light on this. I think it's really important that we show Canadians exactly what the CBC is doing and all the more reason to uh, support our, our push to um, uh, defund the CBC, to uh, stop giving taxpayer dollars to the CBC, get them out of taxpayers' wallets, uh, Chris Sims, of course, from Alberta, uh, our Alberta director, she's leading the campaign. So I would encourage everyone to go to taxpayer.com. We've got a petition about the CBC. Go ahead and sign it. Contact your politicians. We should not be wasting $1.2 billion on this kind of an entity. So uh, again, thanks a lot, Ryan. Uh, and uh, thanks everyone for uh, tuning in to hear this story about the CBC. Hi everyone, my name is Carson Binda, holding down the fort for our taxpayer army here in beautiful British Columbia. Now, I'm being joined by my good friend and colleague, Gage Halbrick, today to chat about Bill C-21 and uh, the rising cost of Ottawa's gun buyback debacle. And it looks like this gun buyback debacle could potentially be reaching into the billions of dollars in cost for taxpayers across the country. But finally, it's looking like we can all breathe a sigh of relief after the latest updates from the government's gun control legislation. Gage, uh, you're here to loop our supporters in on these changes. So why don't you tell us what's been going on? I mean, you're right, Carson, we can breathe a small sigh of relief and our supporters have a big part to play in that sigh. Uh, recently, the government uh, introduced late last year two amendments that could potentially ban thousands 
and thousands of single shot regular types rifles. Um, the SKS is a one that lots of farmers have, uh, and they could include that in the gun ban, you know, criminalizing thousands of hunters and sports shooters. But our supporters knew that was a costly and arbitrary program. So they let their MPs know and they let the members of the committee know this was a bad idea and they should scrap it. I mean, for example, the original cost of the buyback was somewhere around $756 million as done by the PBO. Uh, and then a criminologist, after these latest amendments were introduced, said it could add another $1 billion to that cost. A crazy amount of money. And our supporters knew that, so they let the committee members know. And thankfully, a couple of weeks ago, they actually withdrew uh, those two amendments, making uh, saving taxpayers a lot of money. But it's important to remember the bill and the buyback aren't gone yet, but we did do a significant step uh, in achieving that victory. I mean, for example, new Democrat MP Alistair McGregor, who's on the committee debating the bill, he said he's never seen such a groundswell of opposition that came from really everywhere all at once. And our supporters are a big part in that opposition. Yeah, so it's great that these uh, these costs are down. Uh, it seems like everybody hated the amendments and and the gun ban. Can you talk us talk to us about who else was making this an issue? Who else was putting pressure on the Trudeau government to do away with this absolute boondoggle? Well, it was almost everyone, and uh, rightly so, because this is not any kind of sensible policy that any government should ever. Uh, introduce, like for example, the National Police Federation. So the RCMP's union uh, came right off even before those amendments and said that the ban and buyback will quote do very little to address their goal to increase public safety unquote. That's not a, a good start. But even outside of the professionals, we've got uh, Kerry Price, a goalie for the Montreal Canadiens, who posted a picture on Instagram of him in his hunting gear, saying that he's not a criminal and that uh, hunters should be able to keep their tools. And it kind of went on from there. The Assembly of First Nations passed an emergency resolution to oppose the amendments. And they said that it infringed on First Nations treaty rights to hunt and harvest. A big group of people impacted there. And uh, to cap it all off, even members of Ottawa's own government thought this was a terrible idea. An MP for the Yukon, Brendan Hanley, said he would not be supporting the bill with the amendments. He said the government's gun control measures were upsetting. And, they talk, and he talked about how, how many Yukoners have a rich history of hunting and harvesting and what those bans would do to them up there. So, I mean, it's great that these amendments are gone and it's great that everybody was fighting it. I mean, I'm personally happy that the federal government won't roll up to Saskatoon anytime to take away my SKS that I use for target practice. So, you know, it seems like we had everyone from the First Nations community to the RCMP to the government's own members of parliament telling us what a disastrously bad idea Bill C-21 and the gun buyback legislation was going to be. So it's great to see that the government's done away with these amendments that it sounds like everyone from coast to coast to coast had an issue with. But what does the uh, getting rid of these amendments mean for the rest of the bill? I mean, the bill is still an issue. It's still around, isn't it? It's still around. So it's good that those potential costs of a buyback, if they were included, is down. But we shouldn't get out the cake and streamers just yet, um, because before these last amendments, again, the buyback was estimated around $756 million. That's not a small chunk of change, and it's still around. Uh, the office that the government created to run the ban and buyback has already billed taxpayers uh, for millions of dollars. And really, it's kind of, uh, for history's any indication, we've been through this before. The original long gun registry, which didn't actually even have to do with purchasing firearms, was only supposed to cost $2 million. And by the end 
of that debacle, we had gotten to about $2 billion in cost to taxpayers. I'm so sorry. Did you just say that the costs rose from $2 million, $2 million to $2 billion? With I, I mean, that's a that's a 1,000, 1,000% increase. That's insane. And quite frankly, it looks like this buyback is shaping up to be another boondoggle exactly like that long gun registry was. So Gage, for our supporters, for the folks at home, what are the next steps here? What can we do to keep on fighting against this legislation? Well, because we want to be wary of uh, those costs increasing again, potentially to even higher, uh, we need to be wary, right? The bill isn't gone. They're still considering it in committee. So we need to make sure that we're watching out to make sure they don't introduce any of these types of amendments again that could drive costs up for taxpayers. But really, in the end, Ottawa just needs to scrap this whole thing, Bill C-21 and the original gun buyback. It's been nothing but a mess since they introduced it about three years ago. But luckily, Carson, our supporters are already on it. They're reminding their MPs and the committee members to get rid of this bill completely and scrap the gun ban and buyback. Yeah, thank you so much, Gage, for really shining a light on what a disaster this has been for taxpayers since day one. Thank you for keeping the fight, uh, keeping the pressure on the government to do away with this boondoggle. And uh, I'm sure our supporters will be hearing a lot more from you moving forward as this developing story continues. Thank you, Carson. I'm joined by my very good friend and colleague today, Dr. Jay Goldberg. Uh, Jay, you know, I've been hearing the name Phil Verster in the news a lot. And I, I've seen that uh, Metrolinx, the, the crown corporation in, in Ontario responsible for transit and transit infrastructure, has been in the news a lot. So can you just run us through what's going on with Phil Verster and Metrolinx over in Ontario? Yeah, so Phil Verster has been in the news a fair bit lately here in Ontario, and it is because of his insane salary, number one, uh, and also the insane jump in his salary, number two. And then, of course, later in the show, we know for sure we're going to chat about uh, some of the failed projects uh, and reasons for the fact that for Mr. Verster, maybe he shouldn't even have uh, the job he's currently in, let alone be getting all these pay raises. But he was hired in 2017 to uh, take over Metrolink, which, as you mentioned, is the transit infrastructure uh, crown agency uh, overseeing the GTA and transit project here in the greater Toronto area. Uh, but his salary since uh, five years ago has gone up by 52% in the past five years from about $500,000, which is already insanely high, that's half a million bucks, uh, all the way to about $851,000. And so I think a lot of people in Ontario have been very frustrated with this. Um, obviously, there's a few reasons. Metrolink hasn't been performing, but you know, there's so many people here that are barely making ends meet. You know, we know grocery prices are soaring. It's harder to fill up your tank at the gas pump. And yet we're seeing bureaucrats, uh, really these greedflation bureaucrats, to use a Jagmeet Singh term, uh, just really fleecing taxpayers. And the idea that his salary has gone up by over $350,000 just in the last five years. And again, we'll talk about the lack of performance uh, in a few moments, but the fact that that has gone up in a period of time, and we're seeing seven, eight, nine percent inflation, food inflation through the roof, gas prices, you know, we can't afford to fill up our gas tanks. And, uh, you know, this guy's out making $850,000 a year. So 
uh, people are really upset about this. Uh, it, it just seems like he's very out of touch, that the government is very out of touch because they're defending giving him a salary that big and giving him all those raises. Uh, and so, yeah, that's kind of what set people off here. Um, you know, uh, just this, this massive pay hike and the massive take-home pay that we're seeing with Mr. Verster. Yeah, I mean, listen, a bureaucrat getting more than $800,000 a year when at the same time as one in five Canadians are going without food uh, at the same time that everyone is struggling with these huge costs of living increases. I mean, I was at the supermarket yesterday and I was watching a family put back a gallon of milk because they just couldn't afford it right now because of those sky high prices. Now, I know the the public sector operates under a little bit different rules and norms, but over here in, in the private sector, your, your salary, your raises, your bonuses are usually tied in with your performance. Now, I've never heard of anyone in the private sector getting a 52%, I think you said, pay raise overnight. But um, has Verster performed well for his $800,000 a year salary? I mean, that's about eight median Canadian families. Is Phil Verster working harder than eight normal Canadian families to deserve that massive salary? That's right. You're saying families. So that's about potentially 16 people uh, in average jobs in the private sector. But no, he has not been performing and Metrolink hasn't been performing. So, you know... It, Again, even to see a, a small uh, increase in pay based on Metrolink's performance, I don't even think Mr. Verster uh, deserves that, let alone uh, the 52% pay increase we've seen. And let me just give you a few examples. We've got the signature Ontario line. Doug Ford has been pushing for the subway line east to west through the heart of Toronto. He's been pushing for it since he became premier. The cost has gone up from $12 billion to $20 billion. That's a 75% cost increase and it's still years and years away from being completed and in some places the shovels aren't even in the ground yet so uh that's a huge cost that's something metrolinx is in charge of that's something that phil verster is in charge of uh another example we have the eglinton cross and lrt another east-west project now this project goes all the way back to when i was an undergrad more than 10 years ago uh, I was taking the bus across the street, Eglinton. The project was already underway. It's still going on. It's years and years behind schedule and way overpriced. Uh, so again, there's another failure. And then if you don't want to just look at the city of Toronto, you can look, for example, the cities of uh, Burlington and Oakville. We're looking to get a railway bypass put in. Uh, Metrolinx has been in charge of that project. It is three times the cost of what it should have been. Uh, and what that means is that people in both of those cities have seen property tax hikes because, of course, municipalities in Ontario cannot run deficits. So what we're seeing is tax hikes at the local level for all of uh, Phil Verster and Metrolink's mistakes. And then we're seeing bigger deficits at the provincial level because of these mistakes. Unfortunately, Doug Ford still says he has a lot of confidence in Mr. Verster. He is still giving Phil Verster this $850,000 salary, which, again, has been the result of eight pay raises over the past four years. Um, so he's definitely not deserving of it. And uh, those are just a few examples of exactly why Metrolinx is failing. And, you know, whoever's in charge should not be getting any kind of a raise, let alone 52%. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, it sounds like absolutely everything that Phil Verster and Metrolinx touches turns into an absolute train wreck. Sorry, pun intended. 
Um, now, but that leads me to another question. I'm sitting here scratching my head. It sounds like everything they do comes in over budget and behind schedule. Uh, do you think Metrolinx is even needed? Like, does it provide good value for money for, for folks, taxpayers in the greater Toronto area? Like, what, what is its job? What does it do? Yeah, I would say no and no. Uh, so Metrolinx was created in 2006. The McGinty government created it. So this was basically to uh, allow for when, you know, there's transit projects linking multiple municipalities. That way there's sort of like a, you know, a bigger uh, transit uh, authority overseeing this. But the reality is, look, we've seen, uh, you know, well over 15 years of behind schedule, over budget. Uh, they've just been falling down on every possible job. And so I think the conclusion we need to make now is the Metrolink experiment has failed. Um, listen, before 2006, there were still a lot of transit projects that were done. Uh, they were started and finished without Metrolinks. We can do it again. And frankly, if there's a transit project that's linking multiple municipalities, you know, the two municipalities or, or, or three or four, you know, can work together and figure out a way to work it out. But we do not need this larger authority that is just, you know, more bureaucracy and more red tape more salaries, uh, and, you know, the head of it is getting $850,000 a year. We don't need Metrolinx. You know, again, we succeeded before 2006. You can do it again, and it's called intergovernmental cooperation. We see it all the time on other issues. There's no reason why we can't just have municipalities working together to have transit projects done. Yeah, well, Jay, let me tell you, when it comes to transit authorities, thinking taxpayers are an endless well of cash and tapping us dry, uh, you folks over in the greater Toronto area are not alone. Here in BC, we've got a very similar crown corporation called TransLink. And TransLink is famously wasteful. I mean, time and time and time again, TransLink has shown us and shown everyone in British Columbia that they are simply too wasteful to be trusted with another dime of taxpayer money. You know, it was so bad that over here in 2015, our longtime supporters will remember this, uh, TransLink, tried to, TransLink tried to bring in an additional sales tax uh, to fund all their wasteful spending, to fund those fat, uh, exorbitant executive salaries. Now, our supporters came out like David against Goliath with these people. Uh, we forced TransLink to hold a referendum on their spending, to hold a referendum on this, on this out-of-control tax hike that they were proposing. And let me tell you, Jay, our supporters pulled through. We managed to beat TransLink. We managed to stop them from bringing in that new, uh, that new sales tax hike. But let me tell you what these sneaky bureaucrats over at TransLink did next. They, uh, they couldn't bring in a new sales tax. They lost that uh, at the ballot box. So they increased the carbon tax that they charge drivers in the lower mainland. Now, Jay, this blows my mind. But over here in, uh, in Greater Vancouver, in the lower mainland of British Columbia, we're paying about 75 cents a liter in gas <sighs> taxes at the pump. 75 cents. I mean, that's jaw-dropping. Those are the highest gas taxes, not just in Canada, not just in the Great White North, but across North America. It's mm -hmm. crazy. And of that shocking, eye-watering 75 cent a liter gas tax, well, TransLink gets 18 and a half cents a liter of that. It's a slap in the face. They weren't able to bring in their sales tax increase, 
But those sneaky bureaucrats got their pound of flesh anyways. They uh, increased the taxes we pay on gas. Now, TransLink is famously wasteful. Any Lower Mainlander will tell you that TransLink wastes money like no one else. But even with TransLink, even with famously wasteful TransLink, their CEO makes just about half of what Phil Burster does. Uh, that's crazy. It's crazy. I got to say, Carson, we can't beat you when it comes to the gas tax. Thank gosh we do not have a transit municipal uh, tax here in Toronto, Greater Toronto area. And, and please, I do hope that John Tory closes his ears for those few seconds where we just mentioned that. I don't want him to get any ideas. Uh, but yeah, your gas tax is about 20 cents a liter more than ours. So can't complain there, but I can complain. Well, I mean, I can't complain because the carbon tax sucks and it's still too expensive here, let alone in British Columbia. But we can definitely complain about Phil Verster's salary. It is hundreds of thousands of dollars more than the head of TransLink. I think Doug Ford might think about that when he's deciding exactly how much pay the head of Metrolink should be getting here, let alone whether or not he should still be leading the organization. I mean, look, it's good to know that Ontario, we're not alone on getting screwed over by some local transit authorities. Uh, you know, I don't like to hear that this is happening in BC because I feel bad for BC taxpayers too. Um, but definitely we know we're not alone. It sounds like, you know, folks are getting screwed over in the lower mainland and in the, G the GTA and Ontario as a whole. So sounds like we got a little bit in common there. Absolutely. I think uh, our premier over here, David Eby, and yours over in Ontario, Mr. Ford, might have a little bit more in common than they maybe would like to admit. <laughs> well, Jay, thank you so much for coming on today. It's always great to chat with you about the issues you guys are facing over there in Ontario. And thank you for shining a light on this important issue of government waste, these out of control $800,000 salary for bureaucrats. You bet. Great to be with you, Carson.